The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now for our featured presentation. Thank you for that kind introduction. Tommy, and uh, thank you for the fish. <laughs> yeah, he gave me a, a big slab-sided, white-bellied fella. Look a lot like me. <laughs> Put it right on the grill and gave it some heat, kind of like they're doing to me now, too. <laughs> I want to thank you for coming out tonight. I know how hard you work and how little time you have to rest. Now, some of us got more time than we'd like. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah. I understand. In fact, since this factory closed, how many of you have found work? Let me see a show of hands. Right, right. And how many of you work jobs that just pay the rent no matter how many hours you put in? I see. Yeah. My mama worked jobs like that after my daddy died. I remember her coming home from work just bone weary. You know what I mean. And I, I know she wanted to play with me and ask me about school. But sometimes you're just too tired to do anything but heat up a TV dinner and blob out in front of the tube. You got that one right. There you go. And I don't have to tell you how hard it is to be looking for work. Hey, I don't have to tell you anything about hard times. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. <laughs> I know. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking he must really be desperate to do that. But if you had to swallow enough sh garbage. You can say shit. We're X-rated. <laughs> yeah, it, it, me too, if you believe what you read in the paper. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to welcome a new addition to How Is This Movie? Now, earlier, I put a tweet out that I'm going to be changing the name of the show to the Dana Buckler Show, and that's going to happen in just a few weeks. In the tweet, I said that I had um, some ideas from some new segments that I want to do and uh, some new ideas that I was looking to try. And I basically put a, a casting call out there, if you will, and said, I'm looking for some people to join me. And I expected to get about two or three emails. And when the dust settled, it was close to about 75 emails. So let me first start by saying thank you to everybody that took the time to email me. I know I have not responded back to all of them. I promise I will. Just thank you. I was humbled and overwhelmed by the amount of people that were showing interest in being part of the show. But one of those people is joining me right now. 
And uh, please take a moment and introduce yourself. Sure, Dana. So my name is Ashley Schlafly, and I am a resident of Houston, Texas, big fan of the podcast, had been for a really long time. Um, in my day job, I work in higher education. Uh, my research is all about critical theory, which is just a, a way of basically saying that I'm interested in how social systems and ideological systems work and interact. And so I write a lot about equity and power, but also how that relates to culture and to art. And so that kind of leads into my hobby and my free time, which is I'm kind of a, you know, I'd like to consider myself an amateur student of all things film and TV. And I'm really excited to get to join you and talk about what of actually my, my favorite movies today. Excellent. Now, before we get into the subject of today's episode, what I found really interesting and, and I, when you and I spoke on the phone, I, after I answered your email, I said, uh, I'd really like to talk to you on the phone. And I scheduled a, a quick little phone interview, if you will. I anticipated it lasting for about five minutes. And I found our conversation was so engaging that it lasted for more than an hour. I knew right then and there after that conversation, you were exactly who I was looking for for this segment. One of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to sort of showcase and talk about I don't want to necessarily say smaller films, but certain some movies that aren't in the pop culture lexicon. Because if you look at the history of how is this movie, it's it's usually talking about big blockbuster films. There are really huge Oscar winners, you know, everything from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to Shawshank Redemption to The Terminator to Jaws. But what you and I were talking about on the phone was really exploring some some other films. And it was funny because we got on the subject of John Travolta, of all people. <laughs> And uh, we'll talk a little bit about John in, later on as it pertains to this episode, but we got talking about a few of his movies and the subject of Primary Colors came up. Now, this is one of my favorite films as well. It, it was one of the movies that sort of opened my eyes to sort of the behind the scenes of the political campaign process. I think the light bulb went off right away and we said, well, this is the first film we have to talk about. So there's a lot to unpack when it comes to the story of Primary Colors, but I think First, we need to talk about why this particular episode is so important right now and why it sort of made perfect sense. Because as of recording this episode, we are two days away from the midterm elections. And for the international listeners out there, the United States has two main election cycles. They have the general election in which the president is elected. And then every two years after that, they have a midterm election. And that is happening again on Tuesday. So actually, I want to turn it over to you just for a moment to sort of talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of, of midterm elections in general. And what sort of sets this one apart? And why is everyone around the world sort of focusing in on this one? Sure. So, you know, the 2016 election um, was an incredibly divisive election. No matter which side of the political aisle you were on, people felt incredibly strongly about their candidate, whether it was Hillary, whether it was Trump, or whether you were a third party um, you know, person, you felt very strongly about what this election meant. And 2016 was kind of built up to be this referendum on where this country was going to go, because we'd never had a candidate like Trump before. Like him or not, he was a brand new type of candidate that we were dealing with here in the U.S. And since his election, there have been many things that have continued to increase that divisiveness that we're seeing or that polarization that we're seeing. And so from Brett Kavanaugh through the immigration issues, through the Me Too movement, people have continued to dig their heels in on both sides of the political aisle. And this midterm is the first opportunity for us as a people to go to the 
polls and speak out uh, with regard to that. And midterms always are a bit of a referendum on the current administration. And that's actually where, when we were talking, that primary colors kind of naturally fits in. Because primary colors, as we're going to get into later, it deals with this encapsulation of the beginning of the Clinton years. And the Clinton years are wildly held as the time when political polarization, like we know it, began. Um, We have to kind of start with in 92, Clinton was elected. And then in 94, which was a midterm election, there was something that came about, which was called the contract with America. And so it was introduced in 94 by congressional Republicans just six weeks before the midterm elections were held. And for international audience, just as a refresher, Clinton was a Democrat. And so the Republicans wanted to have this referendum and, and take back the House and take back the Senate in a way to speak to what Clinton was trying to do in the Oval Office. And so the contract with America was brought forth by then minority whip Newt Gingrich, and it promised that they were going to take back this control, that this GOP revolution was going to happen, and they were going to have control for actually the first time in 40 years. And they put out what we've become in, in modern day, what we know the Republicans to represent small government, tort reform, welfare reform, all of that that we know today represent the Republicans all through Donald Trump. And it was revolutionary, though, because that had never happened before. There was never one document that told voters exactly what they would get, regardless of who they voted for. So you could vote in Wisconsin or you could vote in Alaska. And as long as that R was behind the candidate's name, you knew what you were getting. And in short, it it worked. Uh, They completed this revolution and they took control of the 104th Congress. So you had a Democratic president, but the Republicans for the first time controlled the House and the Senate in 40 years and all of a sudden had all of this power. And the result of that is that the ideology of the Republicans was super clear. So the Democrats had to answer in kind and their ideology and Clinton's ideology had to become even clearer. And so this divide began to develop between the left and the right based on these ideological lines in the sand that were drawn. And they began to distance themselves kind of with total opposite positions. You know, think pro-life versus pro-choice or pro-death penalty versus anti-death penalty. There was no gray in between. You knew what they were for and very much so what they were against. And over time, the voters that began to vote for the parties that were drawing these lines they themselves grew further apart. You know, when I was preparing for this day, I was looking back on a, 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 a research study that was done by the Pew Research Center. And in 1994, when this contract with America happened, only 10% of American people identify themselves as staunchly liberal or staunchly conservative. By 2014, 20 years later, it more than doubled and it went from 10% to 21%. More than that, though, over that 20 year period, people began to view the opposing side differently. So 21% of Democrats in 2014 and 36% of Republicans claimed that the other side actually endangered their way of life and threatened the nation's well-being. And we see that today where people who are anti-Trump think he's, you know, the, the, the worst thing that's ever happened to America and people that are pro-Trump would have thought that Hillary was exactly the same thing. And so that means that we've seen this ideological divide grow. And with it, we see this animosity that's growing that we have in politics today. And as I've already kind of mentioned, the Trump era has only served to increase that, that animosity, that polarization. And what's really interesting is that it's begun to bleed into all different aspects of our lives, like outside of the voting booth. Like, for example, take, take for instance, where Americans like to live. There's another study that that same group, the Pew Center did, that showed that by and large, Democrats prefer urban living. So they prefer dense areas where everything is a major city and food and shopping is all really, really close to them. 
whereas 65% of Republicans prefer to live where houses are far apart and the neighborhoods are not as dense. And so if you take that with just the preference in their personal lives and you apply that to the 2016 election results, the non-political preferences are starting to echo that ideology where 59% of people in 2016 that lived in big cities voted for Hillary and 62% of people who lived in small cities or rural areas voted for Trump. And that's kind of indicative of this phenomenon where like-minded people are reinforcing one another's like-minded views. Um, there's this, this thing in psychology that I actually study in my own work. It's called the mere exposure effect. And it's really interesting. And it's where we become comfortable with things simply because we're familiar with them. And in political science, that kind of bleeds into this concept of political socialization. So take, for instance, you grow up in an urban area, diverse populations in terms of race, religion, socioeconomics. You hear your parents talk about Bernie Sanders. You hear them talk about how terrible Trump is. And you're a lot more likely to develop liberal beliefs and less likely to vote for conservative candidates like Trump. The same is true for people who grow up with conservative principles. They're less likely to vote for people like Hillary or like Obama. And it's basically just this idea that everything that those candidates on the opposite side represent, it's not just for you wrong, but it's immensely unfamiliar. And while it's certainly possible to move from one ideology to another, it takes a change in that familiar to do so or an exposure to other beliefs or other pop, you know, other possibilities. But that requires a lack of isolation, which is becoming more and more rare in our political and social landscapes. I mean, think about our social networks, our friendship groups. We statistically are becoming more and more homogenous in our personal lives, eliminating this opportunity to be exposed to that unfamiliar. And our research is showing that that self-isolation, it's translating to what we believe, how we think, the movies we watch, the podcasts we listen to, and for the purposes for this discussion today, how we vote. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens on Tuesday. And I know that a lot of people will probably listen to this episode days, weeks, maybe even months after the outcome has already been determined. But thank you. That really, really makes a, a heck of a lot of sense as to understand how we got there. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk just a little bit about, if you could please talk just a little bit about what I would dub the sort of the Clinton phenomenon as far as where the country was at in uh, 91, 92 with George H.W. Bush and sort of the Clinton effect, the Clinton, Clinton phenomenon and sort of where he just kind of seemingly came out of nowhere or did he, or was, was he known in, in, in the circles? Sure. So, you know, what, what I think is really interesting about that is it's, it's so hard for us, I think, to think back to, to that time, especially, I, mean, I was born in 83. So Clinton was the first real president that, that I remember, it, you know, on, on nightly news and giving his state of the unions. But looking back at, at kind of where the country was, you know, HW was a president that came in on the heels of Reagan. And Reagan, for his party, was like a god and still is. I mean, Republicans today, even Trump himself, had to answer to this idea of, are you as good as Reagan, right? Do you have the gumption that Reagan has? He, he kind of was, was revered, but that was people who supported him. The people on the opposite side of the aisle, you know, they they began to look at how Reagan created this war on drugs and Reagan created the trickle down economics and things that had really deep seated, long lasting impacts, even through to today, what we're seeing in our prison systems, what we're seeing in our economical structure in this country can be dated all the way back to the 80s. And so 
H.W. was directly linked to Reagan because he was a part of the administration. And we had Desert Storm under H.W. And by and large, H.W. didn't fare as well in terms of the new televised presidency. You know, Reagan, for for whatever you believe about him, he was a handsome man. He was an actor. So he knew how to throw on the charm. He knew how to be this great orator. I mean, the whole Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall, that incredibly famous speech. I mean, he he was well known and he was he had that charisma, that gravitas that you look for, whether you liked him or not. And George H.W. kind of didn't have that as much. I mean, when we think about him, most people, they think about George H.W. and they think of, no, you know, read my lips, no new taxes, which was a lie because there were new taxes. <laughs> and like, that's what, that's what people most of the time, you know, associate with him. So when, when we are looking at the 92 campaign, Clinton very much was not, he certainly wasn't you know, the favorite. Nobody, I don't think anybody really knew that he was definitively going to get the nomination, but he came out and was this charming, super charismatic, Southern good old boy that could throw in that charm and was a decent order. And we had somebody that in a way matched Reagan in those, in those characteristics that you're looking for and someone that you want to vote for. And you know, I mean, I remember watching on television when he was on, you know, late night and playing the saxophone and he was just cool, you know, compared to these other old men. He would just had this factor about him that people wanted to, to, to listen. And he, again, he was super charming. As we would see his charm, unfortunately, he charmed a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of people maybe he shouldn't have charmed in the way that he charmed them, but he was charming nonetheless. And so when we're looking at this book and we're looking at, um, where where we were when this this book came out and the the movie came out all within those Clinton years we're looking at a time when not only was politics changing in terms of the polarization like we just talked about but also how America itself was changing. And we were on the cusp of a lot of big things. It was the last era before 9-11, before social media, before the advent of, you know, the internet being in all homes. I mean, we were, it was kind of like the last moments of an age we didn't know was ending and which I hope we get into a little bit later, but that's where we were when Clinton came on and people became obsessed with what happened in the Clinton years because it was a time that hadn't happened before and the things that happened in his administration had never happened before. So Ashley, w- before we get into the book, Primary Colors, uh, you, have, you were mentioning sort of at the beginning of the episode about how the Republicans through their contract with America had uh, regained control of both uh, the House and the Senate in 1994. What happened with the, the 96 elect re-election of, of uh, Bill Clinton? I, I guess I would say I was still living in Canada at the time. So it was in the news, but it wasn't something that I was following, even though I was 18 years old at the time. So I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on his re-election in 96. Sure. I mean, you know, Clinton, uh, for lack of a better term, Clinton's always been a good soundbite president. He's always played well on TV. He's always, I mean, even after the scandal, he's he still plays really well in the public eye. And Dole, Bob Dole, just who was running against him, just wasn't, I just don't think he was enough. He It, it kind of was the same situation that the Democrats actually ran into in 2004 when you had John Kerry running against George W. Bush. I mean, John Kerry was just kind of bleh. You know, he wasn't he wasn't somebody people got excited about. And there's a lot of literature, and I, I don't have any citations right now, but there's a lot of literature that people could go out and find that would show that people are less likely to get excited where you're voting against someone 
versus where you're getting excited that you're voting for someone. And so the people voting for Dole, not all of them, but a lot of them were, were voting for him because he wasn't Clinton. They voted for him because he wasn't the Democrat and the executive branch. And, you know, Clinton himself, I mean, we have to remember that everything that happened with Clinton broke after the nine, broke after the 1996 election already had taken place. And, you know, Clinton had pretty high public approval ratings. I mean, you know, as early as 1994, I mean, he still had 64% in terms of people that that liked what he was doing in terms of job approval. And so I don't think there was enough. Now, if they had had the fire that they had that after the 96 election, I don't know if he would have ever been reelected, right? But but he but that hadn't happened yet. And so the Republicans had just taken hold, they were just getting their feet underneath him, because it's only two years, you know, from the contract with America to the reelection. And so you have Dole there and Dole's just kind of, you know, he's just kind of black, you know? So, so it was, it, I, I don't think there was any shot to, to get him out with somebody like Bob Dole. So something else happened in 1996. The yes. book Primary Colors was published. Now, if I wonder if you could take the listeners a little bit through the history of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the book's full title is Primary Colors, a novel of politics. And it was first published on January 16th, 1996. And it actually immediately spent nine weeks at the top of the bestseller list. So it was really popular immediately. And part of that is because it was published anonymously. And so that salacious anonymity of, you know, who, who wrote it made it the talk of not just DC political circles, but also water cooler conversations all throughout the country, because the book itself, while it was a quote unquote fictional story, there are these really thinly veiled references to what happened in the 92 Clinton Gore campaign for president. So I want to first talk about that anonymity. And after weeks of speculation, multiple sources identified a journalist and a Time magazine columnist by the name of Joe Klein as the likely author. His writing style, his access to the characters in the book during the 92 Clinton campaign all left him as suspect number one. But Klein vehemently denied being involved at all. The public still wouldn't let it go, though. And so to quench this desire for answers, even academia got involved in these quantitative analyses of written language and the style it was written were performed, the most famous of which actually was performed by a professor at Vassar by the name of Dr. Donald Foster. And through the results of this quantitative study, the results showed categorically that primary college was written by Klein. But Klein still denied it. It wouldn't be until about six months after the publication in July of 96 that Klein would finally have to admit authorship. And what happened was the Washington Post, uh, they did a handwriting analysis of notes that they found on an early manuscript of the novel. And almost 100% of that handwriting analysis was attributed to Klein. So the cat was out of the bag. He came forward. There was this very dramatic editorial that was released where I am anonymous. And he basically, you know, explained, you know, how he had wrote it, you know, why he had written it. And everybody knew and that mystery was solved. But the mystery of the author wasn't the only really fun part of, of Primary Colors coming out. The, the other one was about the characters, which we'll get into a little bit later. 
But the book itself, Primary Colors, um, it's about a campaign for a man by the name of Jack Stanton. And he's a Southern governor. And it begins with the New Hampshire primary and the election for, for presidency that year. And our guide through the story is this character by the name of Henry Burton. And Burton is a campaign worker. He's incredibly idealistic. He's young. He's smart. And he's hopeful that Stanton is going to finally be this candidate that proves to be an elected official that's in politics for the the right reasons to support the people rather than just using them to obtain power. So Henry has just left another politician service who was elected and he rose to power really quickly, only to force Burton, um, Henry Burton, to encounter the worst of the political system and decide that it's not for him. This power grabbing, he thinks it's kind of gross and he wants out of it. So the novel follows Henry's experiences on the Stanton campaign. And we learn about Stanton and we learn about his personality and his character flaws, his strengths, all through Henry's interactions with him. The same is true of the other characters. We learn about Stanton's wife, Susan, who's this really strong and powerful woman, and the other major campaign players, Richard Jimmons, who's a campaign strategist, and a fixer, Olivia Libby Holden. We learn about them through their interactions with Henry as well. Now, over time in the novel, uh, spoiler alert for those of you who have not read it, Henry becomes incredibly disenfranchised with Stanton, uh, the way he did with his previous employer. And he specifically dislikes the way that Stanton involves himself with two vices, anything that has sugar in it and women, any women he comes across. And in the end, we're left with this uncertainty as to whether Henry's going to remain with Stanton because of that. Now, I have to say one thing that I think Primary Colors and critics as well, that it does really, really well is this ability to capture the frenetic nature of politics, specifically American politics. You know, there's the 3 a.m. work days, the rush of adrenaline as news comes in, this all-out panic when news breaks that's not favorable to your candidate, and these necessary evils that kind of come along with trying to obtain a high office like the presidency. And I think we take that for granted because we sit at home today and we watch these 24-7 news cycles that show us from debates to the campaign trail through election day. But the behind the scenes, that's where these real decisions get made about everything from what the candidate's going to wear to when to roll up your sleeves in a debate to look more relatable or the way that a red tie versus a blue tie is going to play to different parties and how to get people to understand that you're a part of them, not just the person that's trying to rule them. And I, I when I was rereading the book, Dana, I was reminded of this quote that I've always loved from uh, former actually French president Charles de Gaulle. And he, he said that in order to become the master, the politics poses as the servant. And we see that here in the book, and we're going to see it in the movie later, where Stanton takes the time to connect, to relate, to try to become one of the people. And he serves others by trying to be this listening ear, this person that's going to advocate on their behalf. And there's actually a, a little section from the novel that I wanted to share to illustrate that for the people who haven't read it yet, for the way that Henry kind of portrays Stanton in that regard. And the, the in the book, it said, uh, speaking of Stanton, he was in a heavy listening mode, the most aggressive listening the world has ever known aerobic listening. It's an intense, disconcerting phenomenon as if he were hearing quicker than you could get the words out, as if he were sucking the information out of you. When he gives full ear, a rare enough event, he's usually ingesting from two or three sources. His listening becomes the central fact of the conversation. 
And that ability to listen that Klein writes and describes there, that's what gets Stanton support and Clinton in real life. It's what got him support, including the book characters like Henry's at first. But the question of whether or not Stanton's listening is genuine or not, and whether or not it's okay if it isn't genuine, becomes the major theme of the novel. And in truth, I think we have to recognize that Stanton's character is never going to be part of the ordinary people just because he's part of a group privileged enough to afford to run for president, which as of 2016 was a $2.4 billion endeavor. Um, and Henry begins to understand that and that Stanton's just another political elite. He's another flawed guy who's running for office with a history of baggage. And now some of that baggage is relatable, some's nefarious, but it's baggage nonetheless. And it's with that realization that Henry, he has to make this decision of whether or not Stanton's going to be that candidate for him. And we as the audience that's reading also is asked to make that call. Is this candidate an okay candidate for us? Is Stanton really going to be a servant as we hope that he is? Or is he just more interested in that master title that President de Gaulle refers to? And in fact, that's kind of the great question that Klein leaves us with. Is there ever going to be a politician that's in it for the right reasons? Because from those that tell us they're going to make America great again, to the politicians that lead us in chorus of chants of, you know, yes, we can, is any of that real beyond election day or more specifically beyond inauguration day? And those questions are indicative of the legacy that the book Primary Colors has created for itself, much like another great piece of literature, uh, Robert Penn Warren's all the King's Men, Primary Colors, and that other book are books that deal with this connection between identity and corruption. And does the politician that chooses to do something corrupt for the greater good come out more clean than the one that does something corrupt for his own gain? I mean, doesn't corruption, no matter the intent, simply begat more corruption? And is such corruption an absolute necessity to get to the Oval Office today? And 22 years on from when Primary Colors was actually published, I'm not sure we have an answer or if we're ever going to. But as Klein proved with the novel, and as we'll see soon with the movie, it all makes for, you know, one hell of a story. You mentioned that the book spent uh, several weeks uh, on the uh, top of the bestseller list. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the reactions inside the Beltway. And by that, I mean the reactions sure. in Washington. I mean, okay, so so people, before he even came forward, Klein, before Klein even came forward, people knew it was him. What kind yeah. of access did he have to the campaign? I should ask that question first. And then and then what were some of the reactions inside D.C.? Sure. So so Klein was a part of that group of reporters that follows the, the presidents along. All reporters are, well, not all, but the ones that are involved with covering the campaigns, they're, they're assigned to different candidates. And so you'll have a core group of people who follow Clinton, and you'll have a core group of people who follow this person, and a core group of people who follow that person. And so Klein was a part of that inner circle that followed Clinton around. And so when, when the book came out, you know, inside the Beltway. I mean, people, I think that they were intrigued. <laughs> and I think that people were pissed that were in the Clinton camp, because this was some serious airing of dirty laundry. Because again, I, I meant what I said at the beginning in terms of thinly veiled preferences, like it is blatantly obvious who Governor Stanton is supposed to be all the way down to like the little things where they say where Klein writes, um, a kind of, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but a kind of unknown 
Southern governor of a, you know, a tiny state that nobody cares about. That's kind of what they say in the book. And I'm sure we have some Arkansas listeners. I don't believe that way. I've been to Arkansas. It's lovely, but that's what they were writing about in, you know, in the book. And, and that's Clinton, right? I mean, he, he was this governor of a small state that a state that really doesn't matter in terms of the electoral college. You know, Arkansas is not a Pennsylvania. It's not an Ohio. It's not going to sway the election one way or the other. And so he was kind of this, you know, random random candidate that that became so popular so quickly and Klein had that access and you know I think that it became this whodunit on both sides because I think the side that opposed Clinton loved it I mean what more could you love than it finally coming out who your who your opponent is you know what I mean that that's nothing but good press for you and then the Clinton camp I I think began to immediately dive into I mean look what happened and just this year with the anonymous book that was written about Trump. I mean, we didn't have Twitter back then, but I mean, Trump was tweeting out like crazy at, you know, 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. You know, we're going to find out who did it and we're going to do all these things to them because they want to know who, in a way, betrayed them, right? And and there were Klein, I mean, I only talked about Klein. I mean, there were some other, you know, people that were suspected and that were talked about. And and there's actually one of the the biggest ones is there's another character in the book by the name of Daisy, um, who's a dead ringer for uh the a media strategist and the in the Clinton camp and her sister in real life was a writer and people wondered if it was her because they had access to, you know, the person that was actually on the campaign or was it a campaign official that was really betraying Clinton, like somebody who actually worked for him or was it somebody that was more of a, you know, an independent observer, which is what it turned out to be with Klein. But, you know, it was salacious for sure. I mean, it was a talk of everybody. Naturally, when something becomes, you like you said, it expanded beyond Washington, beyond the Beltway, and it became sort of ingrained in the water cooler talk, as you so aptly put it. Naturally, something like that is going to be more than likely turned into a movie. <laughs> so, so naturally, we were going to get a movie. That was going to happen. But the question became, who was going to make this movie? So, Primary Colors was published in 96. And shortly after it was published, it was picked up. Now, who was it picked up by? Well, if I'm going to tell a little bit about the history of Primary Colors, I need to talk a little bit about the history of the essentially the two people that created the film. And that is going to be Elaine May and Mike Nichols. Now, Elaine May and Mike Nichols, they've been working together. Well, they've had a working relationship for, I mean, it dates back to the early 1950s. I mean, they they met by chance. And they started working together as a sort of an improv comedy duo. They recorded some comedy albums. They appeared numerous times together in several plays, even on Broadway. That was all before they started to branch into acting and getting into the movies. In the last 10 years, you have reacted to a great many important newspaper headlines. But of all the events in the headlines, there is one that seemed to affect you most. I, uh... I yeah. see where they've called this little girl to the stand in the quiz scandal. Oh, yeah, the, I saw the little girl. Yeah. Had a picture of her in the newspaper going yes. into court with her manager. Terrible She's, thing. Oh, 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 sick. Yeah. I am just sick you, about it. You just know what sick. I keep wondering? Sick. If they had to fix the little girl... Yeah, fixed her. ...to rig the quiz... Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did they put it to her? She's nine. 
Uh, you know, I, how do they, uh, what do you, how do you put it to a child? Uh, yeah. What do you say to a kid? You, yeah. I suppose they said, uh, kid, yeah. uh, <laughs> you want to make some money. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how I put it to my child. Yeah. Go into a lot of no. things. You're just awful things. Oh, it's oh. the worst thing that's ever because it's a lie. Yeah. I hate a yeah. lie. I haven't been able to think about anything else. No. 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 I I want to tell you something. This is the truth. If there no. was a war tomorrow, I couldn't think about it. No. no. Listen, if there was a war tomorrow, you wouldn't see it in the paper. Well, that's that's a fact. But uh, but it's it's something that leaves you with nothing. The ground is washed. Van Doren was what? my idol. Oh. He was everything. He know. was my idol. He was my image. Yes. 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 And now I don't know what to think. Yeah. I mean, w w does he know anything or is he just a very thin man with a high forehead? <laughs> Along with the many acting credits that Elaine May has, she was also a very accomplished screenwriter. Just her film writing credits alone include Back to Bach, Such Good Friends, Heaven Can Wait, Tootsie, Labyrinth, Ishtar, which... By the way, that's probably going to be a movie we'll discuss sometime uh, <laughs> in Dangerous Minds. So after what could be characterized as a very successful career as an actor and a playwright, Mike Nichols directed his first film with 1966's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Now, this was quite the film debut for Mike Nichols. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf starred two of the biggest movie stars in the world, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Now, like I mentioned in the Exorcist episode... In the 1960s, filmmakers were really pushing the boundaries of what was deemed acceptable, and no movie did more for the advancement of this than Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, with sexual themes and profanity that had never before been seen in big Hollywood pictures. George? Yes, love? Why don't you want to kiss me? Well, dear, if I kissed you, I'd get all excited. I'd get beside myself, and then I'd have to take you by force right here on the living room rug, and <laughs> our little guests would walk in, and, well, what would your father say about that? Oh, you pig. Oink, oink. Fix me another drink, lover. My God, you can swill it down, can't you? Well, I'm thirsty. Oh, Jesus. Look, sweetheart, I can drink you under any goddamn table you want, so don't worry about me. I gave you the prize years ago, Martha. There isn't an abomination award going that you haven't won. I swear if you existed, I'd divorce you. And just stay on your feet, that's all. These people are your guests. I can't even see you. And if you pass I haven't out been able to see you for I years. I try to keep your clothes on, too. There aren't many more sickening sights in this world than you with a couple of drinks in you and your skirt up over your head. A zero. Your heads, I should say. And the movie certainly struck a chord with audiences and film critics alike, as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf would go on to be nominated for 13 Academy Awards. And if anybody's checking, in 1966, 13 Academy Awards, that were all the nominations back then. There were 13 awards that they gave out. Although Mike Nichols didn't win an award for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the film itself did win five Academy Awards, including a Best Actress Award for Elizabeth Taylor. So, right out of the gate, Mike Nichols had firmly caught the attention of studio executives. Now, one year after the release of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Nichols followed up the success of that film with 1967's The Graduate. The film starred Dustin Hoffman, Catherine Ross, and Bancroft, Nichols once again caught lightning in a bottle as the graduate would go on to be nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning in the category of Best Director. May I ask you a question? What do you think of me? 
What do you mean? You've known me nearly all your life. You must have formed some opinion of me. Well, I always thought that you were a very nice person. Did you know I was an alcoholic? What? Did you know that? Look, I think I should be going. Sit down, Benjamin. Mr. Robinson, if you don't mind my saying so, this conversation is getting a little strange. Now, I'm sure that Mr. Robinson will be here any minute now. No. What? My husband will be back quite late. He should be gone for several hours. Oh, my God. Pardon? Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson. Oh, no. What's wrong? Mrs. Robinson, you didn't... I mean, you didn't expect... What? I mean, you didn't really think I'd do something like that. <laughs> like what? What do you think? <laughs> well, I don't know. For God's sake, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Here we are. You got me into your house. You give me a drink. You put on music. Now you start opening up your personal life to me and tell me your husband won't be home for hours. So? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you? The Graduate was such a phenomenon that adjusted for inflation, it would be the 22nd highest grossing film ever in the United States. Mike Nichols' filmography includes... Carnal Knowledge, The Day of the Dolphin, Heartburn, Working Girl, Postcards from the Edge, Regarding Henry, and Wolf. Now, a little side note, Regarding Henry was actually written by J.J. Abrams. Oh, I didn't know that. No, no, no. So. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, 92, 92. Now, throughout the years, Mike Nichols and Elaine May both had astounding careers, but they also remained close friends, and they would constantly work together and help each other out. In a lot of cases, this work would go uncredited. However, the two would officially collaborate on a film with 1996's The Birdcage. May wrote the screenplay based on the 1978 French film La Caja Falls. The Birdcage starred Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, Gene Hackman, and Diane Weist. And it became a huge hit, taking in close to 200 million. Oh, fuck. Of course you can pass as an uncle. You're a great performer. I'm a great director. Together we can do almost anything. Oh, Amon, really? Absolutely. Oh. We've got five hours. All right, first, get your pinky down. It's up oh. again. All right, and your posture. Oh, oh my God, are you crazy? <laughs> what are you doing? Stop screaming. Ah. I'm teaching you to act like a man. All right. All right. Now, this is a dinner party. Let's work with food. All right. Spread some mustard on the toast. Don't use the spoon and don't dribble little dots of mustard. No? No. You take your knife and you smear. Men smear. Smear. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Get the goddamn pinky down. All right, make your fingers like iron, all right? Yeah, and stop trembling. Hold the knife boldly in yes. strength. Oh, <laughs> I pierced the toast. So what? Not since Mike Nichols and Elaine May won a Grammy for one of their comedy albums back in the 1950s did the two receive such high praise. They immediately planned their next project. So Ashley, as you mentioned, Primary Colors was published in 1996 and Mike Nichols quickly snapped up the rights to this for a little over a million dollars. Now once the rights to the book were secured, Elaine May quickly began writing the screenplay. Now coming off the success of The Birdcage, Nichols who was serving as a producer as well as a director for Primary Colors, was able to secure 
roughly about $65 million from Universal, the studio that would eventually distribute the film. Now, casting the film was going to be very crucial, but thankfully, Mike Nichols had the pedigree to reel in some of the top acting talent in the world. Notable casting choices, and we'll talk a little bit more in detail about them, include Emma Thompson, Billy Bob Thornton, Kathy Bates, Larry Hagman, Paul Guilfoyle, Diane Ladd, and Adrian Lester. Now, although Primary Colors is a, as you said earlier, quote-unquote work of fiction, to lend credibility and add some authenticity to the film, several real-life TV personalities made cameo appearances in the film, including Geraldo Rivera, Charlie Rose, Larry King, and Bill Maher. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've left somebody out. And that would be the role of Governor Jack Stanton. Initially, Mike Nichols wanted Tom Hanks in the lead role, but Hanks declined it, citing his friendship with Bill Clinton. Instead, the role went to John Travolta. And I was thinking about this earlier today. Primary Colors was released 20 years ago. And in 1998, John Travolta, like he was in the 1970s, well, like he was in the late 1970s, he was the biggest movie star in the world. And his name alone above the title was enough to drive millions, including myself, to the theater. Now, after the monster success of Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and Urban Cowboy, Travolta seemed poised to command the 1980s. However, five of the seven movies that he starred in the 1980s were considered disappointments. Blowout, Staying Alive, Two of a Kind, Perfect, and The Experts. Although it should be noted that not all of these films were financial disappointments. And many film buffs out there will tell you that 1981's Blowout that was directed by Brian De Palma could easily be one of the best Travolta films ever made. Now, Travolta would have a bounce back per se with 1989's Look Who's Talking, a film that took in $300 million and was directed by Amy Heckerling. Side note, she was the director of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But as we all know, it was 1994's Pulp Fiction, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, that relaunched Travolta's career into the stratosphere. He would follow up the success of Pulp Fiction with Get Shorty, Michael, Phenomenon, Broken Arrow, Mad City, Face Off, and A Civil Action, just to name a few. But of all the roles that he had post-Pulp Fiction, I think I was initially skeptical of Mike Nichols' choice of casting him in the lead role of Primary Colors. You see, one of the downsides of being one of the biggest movie stars in the world is that you are so identified with previous characters that you've played, so much so that it can be hard for a viewer to buy into a particular performance you're giving. Of course, all the doubts were cast aside once critics and theater audiences saw Primary Colors. Travolta was so committed to the role of Governor Jack Stanton that he actually gained 30 pounds for the part. And rumor has it that then President Bill Clinton loved his performance so much that he invited him to the White House, an invitation that Travolta declined because Clinton wanted him to come to the White House in character as Governor Jack Stanton. Now, although Primary Colors has an 80% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, when the film was released on March 20th, 1998, it failed to make back its $65 million budget taking in $39 million domestically and an additional $13 million internationally. The film did receive two Academy Award nominations, one for Kathy Bates for Best Supporting Actress and one for Elaine May for Best Adapted Screenplay. So, Ashley, let's t spend a little bit of time because I'm very curious about, you know, it's a work of fiction, but these characters are absolutely based on real people. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the main players in the story, Specifically, the ones that in the movie, sort of the, you know, we've got John Travolta as Jack Stanton, Emma Thompson as Susan, Susan Stanton, and so on and so on. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about 
their real life counterpart. So I'll ask you to, to tell me the actor, the character, and then who their real life counterpart is. Sure. So the most obvious connection is obviously the link between Jack Stanton and Travolta's character, which is meant to be Bill Clinton. And Susan Stanton with Hillary Clinton, played by Emma Thompson, and her her character also, from everything from her haircut and Southern women complaining about how short her hair is, to the red dress, that famous red dress that Hillary wore at the inaugural ball in that last clip of the movie, everything is all Hillary. This is Henry Burton. This is my Hi. wife, Susan. Hello. I met you 25 years ago as your grandfather's in our gloves. You were running under the sprinkler in little wet underpants. <laughs> your grandfather was a great man. Oh, thank you. Jack Stanton could also be a great man if he weren't such a faithless, thoughtless, disorganized, undisciplined shit. Honey, why are you making such a big deal? Because it is big. First impressions count, asshole. Oh, hello. This is New Hampshire. These people don't know you. They probably don't even remember your state there. They're waiting to be swept off their feet by Orlando Ozio, who's the governor of a real state, but they came to meet you and you didn't show. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked to the head of the Portsmouth Democratic Party about fly fishing for an hour and 45 minutes. Do you realize how indescribably boring fly fishing is? Do you realize I'm not committed to doing this? I'm sorry. This, this... Thing with him, I'm going fly fishing because of you, you asshole. You can't. It's not funny. You can't do this to me, Jack. You can't. You know we've only been at this a month, and already you're fucking up in your old fucked up way. Okay. You know the only shot we have here, the only shot, is to be perfect. Barely adequate won't swing it. No, Jack, you can't blow off. Primrose Lane, life's a holiday. Primrose Lane. When I'm walking down the primrose lane, <laughs> where you're not um, as far as Henry Burton, Henry Burton, played by Adrian Lester, is a dead ringer for George Stephanopoulos. And George Stephanopoulos was the senior advisor to the president at the time of publication. And while uh, Stephanopoulos and Burton don't exactly have um, everything in common, like, for example, the whole civil rights leader storyline, that isn't true with George Stephanopoulos. There's these little things like his wearing the leather jacket to his ID and the role that he plays in the campaign. Perfect dead ringer. Uh, Kathy Bates's character, Olivia Libby Holden, is actually based on a combination of two people. Most people believe that she's meant to be Betsy Wright, who was Clinton's chief of staff. But there's also some people, and I think that they have a, a pretty valid argument, that believe she was also kind of inspired by this guy. His name was Vincent Walker Foster Jr. And he worked with Hillary in a Little Rock, Arkansas law firm before the campaign began. And that fixer aspect, it's very much, you know, Vincent Walker Foster Jr. And then Betsy Wright also, she, she was a tour de force. And so Libby's kind of meant to be a you know a combination of the two billy bob thornton's character who just personally is one of my favorite characters in the movie uh he is he he plays richard jimmings and richard jimmings is meant to be james carville uh we call him the raging cajun so you're out in the woods taking a shit and uh a wild boar comes charging at you now do you pull your britches up and run or do you try to pull your britches up and Grab the doves you just shot, and then try to run, all at the same time. Or do you just forget about the fucking doves, pull your britches up and run, because you ain't got time to aim and button your fly. And if you miss, well, you don't want to die with your dick hanging out. You see what I'm saying? 
I think I speak for everyone in the room when I say no. Well, I mean, uh, what if you're not prepared for the bore and you get caught with your riches down and lose the dust? All right, what Richard is saying is if you get caught in the forest... Oh, don't give us a taking a shit in the woods metaphor again. Tell us what you're talking about. Okay. Say this boar is part of the pack of other boars. Who do the boars represent? The Republicans? No, the press. The press? Yes. Don't they? Yeah, the press. Now, you're dealing with these wild boars. Oh, God. And suddenly they start saying things like marijuana. Chicago. Maybe a woman comes forward and says something. Bullshit. That's not going to happen. Right. Absolutely not. Well, I don't think so either. But... Arguably, I think we should say that both Thornton's portrayal and the way that the character is written don't really completely represent Carville, who in real life is widely held to be a pretty decent and stand-up guy. Like, for instance, I, I doubt Carville's ever going to pull his dick out in the middle of a campaign office to show how big it is um, as it occurs in the book and the movie. But Jimmins is meant to be some version of him, a caricature, if you will, uh, especially in the moments like when they sing You Are My Sunshine. That's written by Jimmy Davis, uh, Louisiana governor of Carville's home state. And the war room that Jimmins and Henry Burton run, that's indicative of the war room that Carville and Stephanopoulos ran in Little Rock in 92. And there's that really famous documentary that was done about the war room and their interactions. Some of that highly is, you know, influential in terms of not just the way that Klein wrote it, but the way that Elaine May writes it in, in the adapted screenplay. Their relationship is kind of captured that um, that constant back and forth and bickering, but these, these two really intelligent men who understand politics, they capture that really, really nicely, I think, in the script. Um, and then the only other character that I think is, is is worth mentioning for, you know, in terms of major players was Daisy Green. She is played by Maura Tierney in the, in the movie, and she is meant to be Mandy Grunwald or Dee Dee Myers. We're not, we're not quite sure who, or maybe a combination of both of them, both of whom were involved with the media and communications of, of Clinton's campaign and of his uh, administration, his first administration. So it's not just the characters, I think, that we have to talk about. It's also some of the events. So in the book and in the movie, a lot of the events that occur are echoed in the 92 camp or from the 92 campaign, most specifically, like, for example, the questioning of Stanton's position on the Vietnam War. That's this direct reflection of the Clinton controversy about suspected draft dodging, um, as well as Governor Stanton, like I kind of alluded to earlier, being a governor from a southern state, much like Clinton's Arkansas heritage. And the fact that Susan Stanton she comes from New York City, like like Hillary. But there's also the storyline with Kashmir McLeod in the book and in the movie. And McLeod is Susan Stanton's hairdresser. And she releases a series of recorded tapes documenting an affair with Stanton. In real life, McLeod is meant to be Jennifer Flowers. Uh, and the tapes she released were a documentation of, a, of an alleged 12-year affair with Clinton. And much like in the movie and in the book, Jennifer Flowers was accused of doctoring those tapes and she she 
uh, you know, was kind of, you know, they, they were able to bring enough suspicion that Clinton got away with it, just like Stanton does in the in the book. Now, Clinton eventually in the Lewinsky hearings would have to admit to having the affair with Jennifer Flowers. So she got a little bit of redemption in that way. But as of the publication of the book and um, in, in the writing of the book, that hadn't happened yet. So, but most particularly, though, I want to talk about the way that the character of Jack Stanton is this dead ringer for Clinton, both in terms of his ability to connect with voters, as well as his volatility. Uh, Stephanopoulos wrote his own book, in, and it was released in 1999, where he talks about the Clinton campaign and the ups and downs of the campaign trail and the White House. And for, for those people who don't know, Stephanopoulos worked for, campaign, worked for Clinton on the campaign in 92. He worked in the administration, and then he worked for him in the reelection campaign campaign in 96. And then he left, he, he was done. So three years after his breaking of ties with Clinton, he releases this memoir of sorts. And in it, he writes about how he would break into hives and have panic attacks because of the anxiety of dealing with the demands that Clinton puts on him. And while I don't know George Stephanopoulos personally, I, I have to think that that reference in the book and the scene in the movie where Stanton's character goes from this controlled politician to this full-on hissy fit in a matter of seconds kind of shows us what he's talking about. It, you know, here Stanton curses and he throws his phone out the window because he's mad that Henry didn't tell him about something that happened with a potential endorsement or he thought it was going to be an endorsement and it fell through. So he you know, he throws his phone out the window and then stops the car and Henry and Susan Stanton are forced to dig through like the brush to try to find it. And that going from this charismatic, controlled guy to this powerful, angry, power hungry man. Fuck all, Henry. Fuck all. You don't know fuck all about preventing. You make me look like a fucking amateur, like a rude ass, barefoot dipshit. Third rate Southern proud piece of shit alderman. You didn't know that Ozio was speaking at that dinner. You couldn't tell me, so I don't know. Shooting my mouth up about that cocktail party. Hello, Richard. If you'd like to make a call, shut up What the fuck kind of operation we got here anyway? How do, how do we get scheduled in for a drop in when he is the main speaker? Get me Howard! You, you just threw the phone out the window. Stop the car. Don't kill us to stop it. I think the phone landed in the brush. Well, you're wrong. It landed over here in the trees. I saw it. I look like shit if I go to that cocktail party. I'm Ozio's warm-up act. And don't you think he didn't know it? But somehow, we didn't know it. Get out of the goddamn brush. I told you it landed in the trees. And Jimmy Ozio is probably on the phone right now telling his father he's got nothing to worry about. Well, that would be the case even if Henry hadn't screwed up. Here's the phone. It was in the brush. <sighs> well, shit. You wouldn't have found it if I hadn't thrown it out the car. That, I think, not only represents this character of Stanton, but represents Clinton. And I think that some of the best acting that Travolta does is in the nuances of showing us these transformations and how all of those character traits can be embodied in, in one guy. And so while he's approachable and kind in public view, Stanton, like Clinton, is smart, he's cunning, he's conniving, and he's demanding. And so Stephanopoulos talks about all that. And Clinton actually directly apologizes to Stephanopoulos. And Clinton's own memoir, My Life, which was released in 2004, where he admits to being far too hard on Stephanopoulos and others on his staff and says he's really sorry about it, that, you know, he kind of was an ass at times. And, you know, Dana, you and I, when we started talking about this, I told you about how I actually had the pleasure of meeting Clinton 
twice. I, I met him in 2004 and I met him again in 2006. And I remember waiting in line in 2004, the first time I was ever going to meet him, because if you've never met a head of state before, it's ridiculous, the pomp and circumstance that goes with it. And so you wait in this greeting line to be able to, to meet them. And as I was sitting there, I couldn't help but think about the handshake part of the movie, which, you know, they refer to as the start of politics, because that's what has always stuck out in my mind about primary colors is that opening scene. And I was like, oh, is he going to touch my elbow? Is he going to touch my shoulder? You know, what is it? What am I going to get from him? And also, I kept thinking about how skeptical I was because I've never quite gotten it because I've never really thought that Clinton was overtly physically attractive. I find his intonation and his accent to be a little off-putting. And so I've never gotten why all of these women slept with him. Like I, I didn't get it. And I I was really skeptical and I was like, okay, I'm going to go back and tell everybody they were crazy. And so I walk up to him. He shakes my hand, puts his hand on my elbow. He looks me directly in the eye. And in that moment, it was, oh, I get it. <laughs> like It was just like everything fell away because he is so charismatic. It's not, I always assumed it was about power because people are attracted to power. No matter what you look like, people are attracted to power. And I always thought that's what it was, but you don't even think about how powerful this man is when you're in the room with him. You don't think about his politics. You feel like you're the only person in the room. He's only there to speak to you and you don't want anything to interrupt you continuing to speak to him. <laughs> and so it was, it was really amazing. And I was kind of upset with myself after because you're, I was like, you shake your head. I was like, what just happened? And the same thing happened again in 2006. I went back in it like, okay, I'm gonna again, not get it and just again, completely got it. And it's those small interactions that I have with him, which was, of course, in a very unofficial capacity. And then the interactions other people had with him, I think it makes sense how Clinton got away with it for so long. And more importantly, with regard to what we're talking about today, how accurate Travolta's portrayal of him was. And while I can't imagine working for him, I think, but for Clinton, I think that Travolta captures how charismatic and that gravitas and just that Southern good old boy that people, people want to know and want to be around. And I don't know. I mean, what, what did you think? I mean, what did you think about, about Travolta's portray portrayal of him? Well, I can honestly say, cause I, okay. So uh, interest of full disclosure for the listeners out there, and I've never really shared the story. I've actually met it like, like you've met Clinton. I've actually met Travolta. Uh, right, two sides of the same coin. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I met Governor Jack Stanton uh, several times. Uh, the first time I met him, I was working in a restaurant back in 2000 and I want to say it was 2005. It would have been 2005. Yes, it was definitely 2005. So, the, okay, so the first time I met John Travolta, I was working at a, um, a fine dining Italian restaurant and I was working as a bartender and we were closing up. We actually, we had closed. It was a Tuesday night. We closed at 10 and... About 10.15, for whatever reason, somebody forgot to lock the door. I had my back to the entrance of the restaurant. I just heard this voice go, hi, uh, uh, are you still open? Now, I'm not going to try to do some, I'm not going to try to do a John Travolta impression, <laughs> okay, because I can't. So, I, but just listeners, picture just a voice going, hi, uh, are you still open? And I turn around. And this is one of those weird moments that I think everybody will have when they meet somebody who's not just a celebrity, but like on a different level of famous. And he was wearing a baseball cap and I looked him right in the eyes and I just, it, it took me about three or four seconds to answer. Now, normally when somebody would have come into the restaurant, they say, 
hi, are you, are you open? I'd be like, sorry, you know, we're closed. Or if we're open, yeah, come on in. Hi, how are you? But I actually paused for a good three to four seconds and just looked at him. And that moment hit me because he's very unmistakable. He, 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 you're not getting anyone else that looks like him. And I went, hi. Now, it's like, just, just as real, like, instead of like, good evening, how are you? Welcome. I just went, hi. <laughs> yeah, we're open. And he's like, can I get a cappuccino? I'm like, come on over to the bar. I'll, I'll make a cappuccino. Come on over. And then I just instantly turned back and, but, but there was that moment where I was just stunned. You know, we talked for a little bit, talked a little bit about aviation. A funny little story about that was this is in 2005 and I, uh, nobody had a camera on their phone or I certainly didn't. And uh, I, I grabbed one of the busboys that worked at the restaurant and I gave him a $20 bill and there was a gas station about two blocks down the street. And I said, uh, go get a disposable camera because this was still the world where we lived. We had disposable cameras. And I said, go get me a di- disposable camera. I don't care if it's five dollars. Keep the change. Just get one and get it back here now. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm talking to John and I just branch out and say, so listen, John, uh, any chance that you're going to be doing um, Chili Palmer again? You know, he was my favorite character. He's one of my favorite John Travolta characters from the movie Get Shorty. And he just smiled and said, well, you know, Big Be Cool's coming out. And I was just like, oh, I got really, really excited about that. And sure enough, you know, the busboy comes back, hands me a little Kodak digital camera. And I just said, uh, dig- excuse me, handed me a little Kodak disposable camera. And I just said, uh, so, John, uh, any chance I can get a picture? And he's like, sure, yeah, no problem. And 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 so I still have that picture. And uh, wow. for the listeners, I will post that picture on my Twitter feed because I still have that picture. So where I live in Ocala, Florida, John and Kelly have a property here and they're they're the local residents now. So over the course of the next, you know, what, that was 2005. So the next 13 years, I, I would run into him from time to time. And he remembers who you are. He's always got a warm smile. And... He is, if I'm asked point blank who my favorite actor is, I, I, it's him. It's, it's a hundred percent him. So to go all the way back to your question about what did I think about his performance in primary colors? I think it's the best performance he's given in any movie he's ever done. And I know that's a bold statement because a lot of people will, will look to, uh, Pulp Fiction or some people will even look to Saturday Night Fever. Because he's a, he's very authentic in Saturday Night Fever. But the commitment and sort of the method acting that he had to do to pull off the character of Governor Jack Stanton, like I said earlier, when you're one of the biggest movie stars in the world, people identify you as John Travolta. Well, 10 minutes into that movie, I didn't see John Travolta anymore. I saw, to be honest with you, I saw Bill Clinton because I think that's who he was channeling. And it was very, very convincing. So I, I will go on record and say I think it's the best performance that Travolta's ever given. And you know, uh, I think, I mean, I think that's really interesting because when I, when I, I'll be very honest with you, I, I had not seen Primary Colors in a very long time. When I rewatched it for this episode, it had probably been ten years since I had seen it, and so I sat down and I kind of a little nervous when it started because when, when he first comes on and they're in that literacy meeting, it almost feels like a serious SNL skit. You know, like he's doing this direct Clinton impersonation, everything down from the way like he holds his thumb and like, you know, kind of, you know, squints his eyes when he's trying to be sincere. And so I got a little nervous and I was like, hmm, you know, I was 15 when I first saw this movie. Maybe it's not going to hold up. And then it's it, it comes across that you it's obvious that Travolta is being so intentional to get that out of the way from the beginning that, yes, I'm Clinton. 
you know, get over it. I'm Clinton. I'm no longer John Travolta. I'm meant to be him. And then he starts building this full bodied character and he goes from this caricature, which is what his whole performance could have been. And in the hands of a lesser actor, I think it would have become. And we can, I'm sure we'll get into what, you know, whether or not some of the other characters were as good at representing their, their real life counterparts, but it could have been this impersonation and caricature and it wasn't. I, I began to really see this character build and Jack Stanton become charming and flawed and you you couldn't help but want to see more of him and I think Travolta is amazing that he did that because again in the hands of somebody else I think it could have been just a disaster you know and I don't think uh, you know Travolta has had uh, in recent memory he hasn't had uh, as much success with a lot of the films that he's he's put out and I don't think that uh, enough people give him credit for just how good of an actor he is in a lot of roles I mean, some of the roles are tailor-made for him. Chili Palmer and Be Cool, excuse me, tailor-made for him. Uh, the role of Vincent Pulp Vega, Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Oh, I mean, absolutely. just, just, just per- he's just tailor-made for some of these roles. Nobody is cooler with that haircut that no, he has. Nobody no. else would be able to pull that off. I mean, he's amazing. Oh my goodness, he's but amazing. I, I mentioned, I mentioned earlier, Urban Cowboy. Mm. You know, you know, for for a guy who's from New York, I mean, he he's New York through and through. He pulled off. That character in Urban Cowboy very authentically, and and I, I say that as somebody who lived in the South for quite a while, lived in different parts of Tennessee, and 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 have been to Texas a few times because that that's where it takes place. Yeah. But you're from Texas as well, so what do you? I, I live in Houston, Texas. Yes. What, what are your thoughts on Urban Cowboy? I, I think he's great. I, I think he's great. I think that what Travolta brings to that movie that he does to all of his movies is this charm. Because I'll be very honest with you, Travolta acts in some movies that are, it's not him I don't like. He acts in movies that are not my favorite genres, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that he does and that he has done. Like I'm thinking specifically like even recently, like Wild Hogs, right? Or Broken Arrow, or you mentioned Face Off. You know, those types of movies are not my personal preference favorites, but my parents, they love those kinds of movies. And so I've watched them with them. And while I will not enjoy the movie, I still enjoy him, if that makes any sense. Um, and I think that is is what he does with Urban Cowboy and with all of his movies is he brings this almost like respect for the subject matter. Because in a movie that's about the South, like, or, but set it not about, but set in the South, like Urban Cowboy, or like this movie with primary colors, or even with one of those crazy films like Face Off, where his face is literally being cut off and put on Nicolas Cage, which we won't even get into the problems I have with that. You know, even even with that, he like respects the subject matter and he respects the people and he respects the the character and kind of gives it its due. And I, I think that he's a part of the generation of actors who did that. And I don't think actors today are as good at respecting it. I mean, th- I, I'm thinking most of like Robert Pattinson and Twilight, you know, he hates those movies when yeah. you're watching those movies. I think if John Travolta had played, what's his name? Ed- Edward, isn't that the vampire in Twilight? I think, uh, you know, I'm I, sure you'll I, get an um, actually from somebody if that is I, it, uh, but uh, let's call him Edward. You know, if, if John Travolta <laughs> had played him, I think that you wouldn't have been able to tell he hated the movies. Like, and I, I think that that's one of the things I like the best about him, both as an actor and as this character actor that, that he can, you know, that he's kind of um, capable of being. So, you know, you, you bring up a, a great point and I'm going to cite a, a perfect example about him caring about the roles that he's doing. 
He was in a small movie that just got a video on demand release a couple years ago called Life on the Line, which was about the power line, the guys that go out there and repair the power lines after hurricanes mm-hmm. and things like that. Very small movie. Most people haven't seen it. To prepare for that role, he spent a week with the uh, utility workers here in Ocala. I mean, I'm not talking like just observing, like wearing the hard hat, going up in the bucket, learning how everything works. I think for a small film like Life on the Line, and I don't want to use the term phone it in, but I really feel like someone of his his range could have probably pulled it off without actually spending a week learning how this all actually works. I mean, a big giant studio production would send you, would pay you for, you know, six weeks to go get training and everything. He did this quietly on his own. Like, I know the studio didn't pay for this or anything like this because he wanted to know how these guys acted, how they worked, how, how they lived, the whole nine. And so I, I have a feeling he brings a lot of that to a lot of his roles. And if I can just say one more thing before we move on from Travolta is that. His latest movie, Gaudy, was just just massacred by by the critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Now there's some mm-hmm. conspiracy theories floating around about it having a zero percent. That being said, I have seen the movie a couple of times, and although I am not going to disagree immensely with the critical response of the film, there is one recurring theme in most of the reviews that have been written about Gotti, and is that is that Travolta himself is giving a good performance in an otherwise terrible movie. <clears throat> and I can I can tell you from seeing the movie twice that he is a hundred percent committed to that role. And again, you want to talk about not seeing John Travolta on screen. I don't see Travolta on screen. I saw John Gotti on screen. Now, now was the movie itself good? No, but that's not his fault. He, he gave it 100%. Right. So that's what... Well, well and, and one thing you didn't mention, actually, one of my favorite Travolta performances was very recent. And it was, I know it's not a movie, but in the People versus O.J. Simpson, yeah. I mean, he was fantastic in that. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was so good. So, I mean, I think that, I think that you're right. I mean, he, he has this ability to turn into something that, you know, where, again, you don't see... Because he's hard to miss with that cleft in his chin. Like, he's just got this look, you know. He looks like this movie star i mean he really does and and i think that he's he's great at that i think he's great at changing and and morphing for sure and and you mentioned and there's this the thing you said about you know actors not giving a fuck about performances and roles they're doing mm-hmm. edward cullen or what it, oh my god it, and i lo- just looked it up it is edward cullen okay. you see you knew his last name don't pretend so, so, you've seen him oh <laughs> you you haven't heard the podcast episode about when i saw twilight you're gonna have to go no, back no of course <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joking just trying to call you out as a twilight fan oh here. <laughs> well that's gonna be a long hard road for that to come out uh but i will say this i didn't like the last james bond movie that came out because I knew Daniel Craig didn't like the last yeah. James Bond movie that came out. So that's a perfect example of 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 actors not giving a shit about the roles and not mm-hmm. wanting to do them. So, you know, I can get excited about a Travolta movie because I know he goes all in every time. Now. Absolutely. So that's that's it. So, um we were talking about performances in the film. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Emma Thompson's performance as Susan Stanton, aka Hillary Clinton. I saw a very strong-willed woman on screen. I didn't see Hillary Clinton on screen. Mm. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Just from, but no, let me say that again, just because I saw a very strong woman on screen, but I didn't see Hillary Clinton. And I think part of that is because I've seen so much of Hillary Clinton in Mm. the past couple of years 
that I, I, it's hard for me to, to use my quote time travel theory and put myself back into 96 when Hillary was the first lady and wasn't right. secretary of state and wasn't running for president. Right. Well, when she was still the first lady, right? Yeah. Like that was her, her first quote unquote state role. And, you know, I, I think it's a couple of things. So, so first I, I first of all, I love Emma Thompson. I think she's amazing. Yes. But did you not feel that uh, her British accent kind of came out randomly and, you know, throughout the movie? And yes. I, it took me completely out of it every time, every time it happened. Um, so that was one thing. But the other thing is, while I appreciate that, I think she, like Travolta, was trying to not do this caricature. I think that what happened was the greatest parts of Hillary kind of got left out. And that's what I was, I was kind of sad to see is like the best parts of Bill Clinton still are there in Jack Stanton. I hated the fact that Hillary, who is this strong, powerful woman, that the majority of her storyline is about the fact that she's a jilted wife because he clearly cheated on her. And so many of her scenes are her looking exhausted or crying or not crying, but like, you have tears in her eyes or you can tell she's sad. Like I hated that. And, and that's not Emma Thompson's fault. I think that maybe it's cutting room floor issues. Maybe it's that, but you know, she's a bigger character in the novel and she's more uh, full bodied in the novel. There's actually something in the novel that's not in the movie. She actually has sex with Henry Burton in oh, the book. Okay. Interesting. Um, and so, you know, she kind of, you know, she's like, well, you know, he's doing, I'm going to do my own thing too. And, it, and it's this very empowering thing, you know, in the way that it, the way that it, it happens. And that I don't think I don't think she was having an affair with George Stephanopoulos in real life. I mean, who knows, but I don't think so. But that gave her something else in the book, you know, it gave her character more depth. And I was just disappointed. I was disappointed to see that. Um, and then again, the British accent thing whew, totally threw me multiple times. Speaking of the Henry Burton character, Adrian Lester is British, like yeah. Emma, Emma Thompson. I didn't see any issues with the the, no. the accent. He did, he he nailed the role. I didn't know the first time I saw that. I didn't know that he was the George Stephanopoulos character. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. Knowing that now has me more interested in wanting to know who George Stephanopoulos is as a person. Mm -hmm. Now, to to those uh, international listeners, he hosts a Sunday morning talk show on ABC mm -hmm. this week with George Stephanopoulos. So he's still very much involved in the political discussion and the political landscape. No, the civil rights thing, that's 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 all the movie, correct? Yeah, and it's in the well, it's in the book too. It's in the book as well. I mean, he's he's the character that looks and his backstory is the most different from the real life connection, but it's still very much George Stephanopoulos, just the role that he played in the idealism and the intelligence and the connection. I mean, he was, you know, he, that body man, you know, the person who's there giving Clinton the information, prepping him, giving him all of the information about his surrogates. I mean, that was Stephanopoulos and the up and coming young guy that was going to be powerful. That, that was Henry Burton and that was George Stephanopoulos real life. And I agree, but I like the fact that personally, I like the fact that Adrian Lester's performance is not a George Stephanopoulos caricature. And I think it's easier too for the actors who weren't playing the public figures yeah. that were in the Oval Office. I think it was easier for them to kind of craft their own thing. And so I think he benefited from that. I, I do think he got some of the worst writing 
in the film. Uh, there's that really awkward line after the the thing with Richard Jimmons happens in the campaign office, and he says when he's questioning him because Bill uh, Bob Thornton's character said, "Well, you know, she's cool," talking about the woman he's just exposed himself to, and. Henry's character says, so you know when a muffin is cold? And I am just went, like, you know, it was like, eek, you know, I mean, that was a really, it's an awkward line, first of all, and Adrian Lester just really makes it more awkward than it was to begin with. So, I think he gets some of the worst, the worst lines, but I but I do think he, I do think he does a good job, and I, I actually didn't know he was British until you just told me. So, I think that that goes to show that maybe more so than Emma Thompson, he, he was able to curb that. So when I was rewatching the film, it's Henry and much like the book who, who's really hoping that Stanton really is going to be that first politician that believes in what he's saying. And there was mm-hmm. a part of me that said, well, well, why didn't Stephanopoulos run for office at one point? If he was so idealistic and it was looking for that candidate at what point yeah. do, do you just become that person? I mean, become the person you want to be. And I, that's sort of the, the, what I got from him is, you know, you, you're watching the character of Henry throughout the movie. And he, you know, at the, I mean, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie. Oh, maybe I won't. I don't want to spoil the very, very ending of the film. But Henry is left with a real, real question of what to do. Mm-hmm. And the movie answers what he ultimately. No, no does the movie answer it? Or, or it, I think the movie does. I mean, I think the fact that he. What, I mean, are we going to say it? Because I know well, you said you don't want to spoil it. Well, okay. So at the at the where he's at at the very end of the movie, where his character is at, where he interacts with with Stanton after uh, they leave the meeting. After they leave the meeting, the question mm-hmm. becomes: you know, is he still working for him, or is he just there right. as part of? When that's. That's actually how the book ends. Yeah. It ends there. But the movie adds <laughs> that extra scene at the inaugural ball that I think answers the question for us. And I think they were able to do that because it had, you know, when I think about the distance between the publication of the book to the movie that was in that two years, we knew that Stephanopoulos was meant to be Burton, Henry Burton, and Stephanopoulos did stay. You know, he did stick through the campaign. And so I think that's why they added that interlude, almost like the epilogue at, at the ending, at the inaugural ball but that's one of the biggest differences between the book and the movie is like i was talking earlier the book leaves us with these philosophical questions because we don't know and the movie i think gives us a little bit more of a finite you know answer and then we're left to think would we have done the same thing but at least we have an answer as to what henry henry chose you know he chose which bed to lie in so right so let's talk about Kathy Bates character, because this was a mm-hmm. Oscar nominated performance. And you said that she was sort of a composite of a few, mm-hmm. a few people. And again, I have not read the book, but I'm curious, you know, just talk a little bit about her character in the film, basically what her job was. I'm here. Who's talking to me? Uh, Miss Holden. Henry Burton. Uh-huh. Hi, I'm Terry Hicks. <laughs> Jennifer. Uh-huh. Hello, Lib. Hello, shipper brains. You learned how to watch your mouth yet? I will not let you fuck up this campaign, too. I will not let it happen. That was 20 years ago. Yes, I was thinner then. I had a waist. Peter Goldsmith. Ella Louise Harriman. Where is this happening? What? The fucking meeting! I will need a safe house. I know the house. Little, nice rose garden. Call Becky Raymond, 673-4982. Tell her it's for the governor. She'll know what you mean. Now, staff, I want that one. The one who looks like Winona Ryder. Gorgeous. She's smart. Oh, she's smart. I want her as soon as the meeting's over. 
Start. Well, um, a reporter for the Black Advocate dug up the governor's uh, Chicago arrest. We know we can't stop that. Why stop it? It's a paper trail. Chicago's not that important. But we're concerned that there may be other things. Like Kashmir McLeod. Uh, who? <laughs> Boy, you really don't know shit, do you? You mean Susan's hairdresser? And Jack's pork pie. What? <laughs> For Christ's sake, act your age. Jack Stanton fucks around, and he's got enemies. But what, Susan's hairdresser? But what can she do to us? She can sell her story to The Flash for 150000 minus the 10% she's given to the slime sucking down on his luck, shit on his shoes, night school attorney who's agenting the deal for her. You know this. No, I imagined it in the booby hatch. It's bullshit. In your dreams, sweetheart. She can't hurt us. She's selling a story. She has no proof. She has no credibility. It's bullshit. She's the tip of the iceberg. Our Jackie's done some pretty stupid things in his life. He's poked his pecker in some sorry trash bins. We gotta stop them before they stop us. We gotta crush them and sweep them up. From now on, you can call me the Dustbuster. You know, honey child, I'm stronger than dirt. I believe you. Were there any real parallels between the, 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 the real life people that she was sort of the composite of? Sure. I mean, uh, first of all, my favorite. One of my favorite actresses ever. Sure. I mean, I adore Kathy Bates. And man, she is just in her prime in this movie. She's so good. And I, I think that so fixers in politics, for for lack of a better word, these fixers, they they go in and they 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 serve multiple purposes. But a lot of it is opposition research. So figuring out not just information about the other side, but what is that other side going to find out about you? Because if we can find our own dirty dirty laundry out. First, you can have a plan to deal with it when it inevitably gets found by the opposing side. And so that those people are, they can be pretty ruthless and they can be pretty intense. And I think she represents that. And now the two people that her character is based on, unfortunately, as far as I know, they, they did not meet the ill fate that Libby Holden meets in, in the movie, but they were aggressive in that way. So that, that great scene, and I actually remember sitting at home with my family and watching the Oscars and that scene where she goes in to the room where she threatens to blow the guy's dick off with the gun. Like that's the scene they showed in the Oscars just mm-hmm. like before, you know, for, for her, her piece. And I remember thinking, oh man, that's, that's like the best scene ever. You know, in that moment, that aggressiveness, I think, is very, very accurate. Um, you know, in modern day TV, I mean, Doug Stanton in uh, House of Cards, like he's a fixer. Now, he's a little more nefarious and very much a villain, but he's the fixer for Frank Underwood, much like Libby Holden is supposed to be, you know, for Jack Stanton. Interesting. Interesting. We're learning a lot about fixers these days when you, you, mm. when, you when you when you read the uh, when you watch the news you hear all about mm-hmm. that that name that that title has come more and more into uh into oh, yeah. the, the the lexicon if you will. How about just some closing thoughts on this movie? Do you feel like this is a a film that is a period specific film of the 1990s of that time period? You so eloquently put it this was this was pre-social media pre-911 this was a different era it really was it was one that you and i remember Mm -hmm. but is there anything that we can learn from watching this movie in 2018 have things improved have things gotten better have things stayed the same 
You know, I, I'm so glad you asked that because I was hoping you would. And so when I was thinking about that, I think we have to remember that the Clinton scandal, everything we've talked about, it was the first presidential scandal that was confirmed to be so sexual in nature. And it was this direct contradiction to this preservation of morality that the Oval Office of Representatives, you know, Nancy Reagan and her whole, you know, morality push. And even in Clinton's own administration, I mean, Tipper Gore was fighting that fight against NWA and the explicit lyrics all at the same time that this was happening. So this movie was a precursor to what was to come because the Lewinsky scandal would actually be happening when the movie came out. And so I have to think, you asked about 2018. I have to think about Clinton 92 and Trump 16 as bookends to the road that's led us to today, most specifically the Me Too movement. Because we go from two big quotes. I did not have sex with that woman, dramatic pause to prevent perjury, Miss Lewinsky, to grab him by the pussy with Trump. Those are two ends of one giant journey. And as I watched this movie, I couldn't help but think about how Clinton would fare in the world of today, in the world of the Me Too movement. Because regardless of your political affiliations, you cannot separate Clinton and Lewinsky, just like the legacy of Trump will be marked by the allegations of sexual assault that have been levied against him. They're both men that are in power, that use their power in some way to obtain and potentially, you know, control women. And the movie and the novel, they serve as a time capsule of a world that was so different than ours, but it greatly defined the one that we're in today. And you mentioned social media. I mean, you know, today, right, you can log on onto Reddit and onto anything and actually see, you know, Congressman Wiener's literal Wiener, and, you know, hear and see what Trump and John Edwards and other politicians that now are caught in the news for these sex scandals, what they said, what they did. And if primary colors happened today, the Jennifer Flowers tapes would have been all over YouTube and podcasts, they would have played them. You know, Lewinsky, you know, would she have Snapchatted the blue dress? You know, I mean, I just have to wonder if Travolta's performance and if Clinton himself, because I don't think you can separate the two as I think we've discussed at length. I don't know if we'd still view Travolta and Clinton both as so charming on rewatch. If Clinton had been tried in the court of public opinion, the way our modern day politics politicians are. And I think that if he had, perhaps this movie would not have been a comedy. Perhaps it would have been more of a, like a horror film and watching a man that used his power in that way. Maybe we would have viewed him as the villain rather than as he, as he says in that, that closing scene, you know, good old boys like me, you know, would he have been viewed in that tongue in cheek way? Or would we think of him like we do Frank Underwood and House of Cards as the, you know, as the bad guy? Because I, I just want to bring up one more statistic and I, I hope that you don't mind, but you know, Clinton as of 2006, he was only three percentage points behind Ronald Reagan as the second most favorite president of all time. Yeah. <laughs> and that was after Lewinsky broke. So Lewinsky breaking did not do anything to destroy his legacy and the amount of people who love him and appreciate him. And I don't know if a statistic like that would have held up if social media would have been around and he and the Me Too movement, Too movement had been around and we had really tried him the way that thankfully we're trying our public figures today in the public, you know, court of opinion and some in some ways the literal courts. Governor, I'm resigning from the campaign. 
I don't accept your resignation. Look, I just don't feel comfortable about this anymore. About what? This, this, this line of work. Well, I spoke to Richard. He's back on board. I'm putting him in charge, campaign manager. Up in the office right now. I'm bringing Daisy back, too, if she'll come. That's not what this is about. Then what is it? Libby. Oh. Libby's test, you flunked it. Yeah, but just now I passed it, so which grade do I get, Henry? The high or the low? If she hadn't died. If she hadn't died, I'd have leaked the file of someone and I'd have felt bad about it. But you know what? I would have been wrong not to do it. What I did now, I did for Libby. But it wasn't right. Picker hadn't quit it, won the nomination, gone down and taken the party with him. It was only a question of when. And how, and who pushed him off the cliff when he was That's falling. Right. But those are fine points, Henry. Those are how many angels can you fit on the, on the, the head of a pinpoint? This is hardball. Now, you're telling me that you just discovered that and you don't have the stomach for it? I know you better than that. We spent too much time together. This is it, Henry. This is the price you pay to lead. You don't think that Abraham Lincoln was a whore before he was a president? He had to tell his little stories and then smile his shit-eating backcountry grin. And he did it just so that he would one day have the opportunity to stand in front of the nation and appeal to the better angels of our nature. And that's where the bullshit stops. That's what it's all about, so we have the opportunity to make the most of it, to do it the right way. And you know, as well as I do, there are plenty of people playing this game that don't think that way. They're willing to sell their souls, crawl through sewers, lie to people, divide them, play on their worst fears for nothing just for the prize. I don't care. I'm sorry, but I'm not comparing the players. I don't like the game. I want to work for something small, voter registration. And after everyone's registered, who will they vote for? In the end, Henry, who can do this better than me? Think about it. Is there anyone else out there with a chance to actually win this election who'd do more for the people than I would? Who'd even think about the folks I care about? Oh, shit. Ah, uh, said them so quick? That damn driver, I knew it. All right. We'll go talk to them together. Come on. Ah, don't shake your head, Henry. We worked so hard together to get here. And it's there for us now, right there. We can do incredible things. We can change this whole country. I'm gonna win this thing. And when I do, we're gonna make history. Look me in the eye and tell me it's not going to happen. Look me in the eye, Henry, and tell me you don't want to be a part of it. Jesus, Jesus, Henry. You want me to get down on my knees? I can't do it without you. Don't leave me now. You're still with me, aren't you? Say you are. Say it. Say it. This is ridiculous. You've got to be with me. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for, for being on this episode of How Is This Movie? And I'm really looking forward to you being one of my co-hosts on the Dana Buckler Show, which will be coming out very soon. Maybe we should discuss a couple of the movies we were thinking about covering so listeners will have an idea of how, how that conversation went the first time we talked. We have been discussing. The idea was we wanted to we wanted to profile more movies that were not just 
at the top. We wanted to talk about some movies that were total disasters in some cases. And I know the subject of Showgirls came up in our conversation. Yes. And that is definitely a movie that I have been dying to do an episode on. And so I think we we were kicking that around. We were kicking around The Punisher. And when I say mm. The Punisher, I don't mean the Netflix series. I don't mean the Dolph Lundgren. And I, I, I mean the 2004 John Travolta Thomas mm-hmm. Jane, spoiler alert, masterpiece, that is <laughs> that is The Punisher. So, we've got a lot of great movies that we're going to be covering over uh, the next little while. So, Ashley, again, thank you so much for being on this episode. So, uh, Ashley, if people want to follow you on social media, what's the best way for them to do that? Absolutely. I'd, I'd love for you guys to follow me on Twitter and we can talk. Maybe, maybe you guys can help me find the answers to some of these crazy questions that we've come about with today. Uh, but I'm at, I'm at, at Ashley Schlafly and Dana will include a link to follow me in the show notes. All right, Ashley, we're going to talk real soon. Have a good one. Thank you. Just have a little bit. Hey, Governor. Get in my man. Sit down, have some coffee. Oh, no, okay. You gonna get some sleep tonight? Mm, absolutely. Don't you worry about me. I was just going over some ideas with Danny here. Danny Scallon, this is, this is my friend, Henry Burton. Hi. Can I get you something, Mr. Burton? Uh, apple fritter? Uh, no, thanks. You know that, that Danny here works here every night, 12 hour shift, 5.25 an hour. But like I was telling the governor, I don't mind. I would mind if I couldn't work. How about an apple fritter? Uh, not for me. What was the best game you saw here, Danny? College, not pro. <sighs> Utah State versus San Diego State. Oh, yes, that was a great game, wasn't it? Yeah, I saw that. It was a yeah. great ground game. Yep. You gotta have a good ground game. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Apple fritter? No, I, I just said. Well, I, I have one, Danny, but just one. Okay, I will make some fresh coffee, and if you want some, you call me. All right, Danny. Thank you. I'm tired, Governor. Maybe it's time to go home. They're gonna kill me with trash. No, no, not if you don't let them. My own fault. My own goddamn fault. I didn't keep it together. We can still win this thing. We're going to win. But, you know, the hits you're taking are nothing compared to what average folks are going through. Hmm. Losing their jobs, losing their homes. Keep that in your mind. Yes. Keep the folks in your mind. Yes, it's about them, isn't it? Yeah, it's about them. It's about, it's about history. Yeah, well, that, that's true for Susan. And this, for me, it's always been about, about them. Like this fella, Dennis Scanlon, he yeah. worked every day since he was 14. He couldn't get insurance, couldn't get his leg fixed right. Doesn't complain. Doesn't do anyone any harm. Aching to do good. let a man like that go down you don't deserve to take up space on this planet do you we won't let him go down the how is this movie podcast is produced by dana buckler for hidden productions located in ocala florida please follow the podcast on twitter and instagram at how is this movie like our facebook page at facebook.com slash how is this movie of course you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitm podcast at gmail.com and finally to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else go to patreon.com slash how is this movie you'll find 
find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.